Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Uh, my name is Pat Dunleavy. I'm a Emeritus Professor of Government at uh, LSE. And uh, also, for the rest of this month, the Editor-in-Chief of LSE Press, which is the uh, august body that is publishing Gwyn Bevan's very marvellous book, which will be available uh, for Gwyn to sign after, uh, after the uh, lecture, or you can buy a copy out there. And um, really, this is an incredibly topical book. So it says, how did Britain come to this? A century of systemic failures of governments. Now, you know, if we were watching the COVID inquiry commentary yesterday, you probably noticed that Boris Johnson's former press officer was asked why was he such a catastrophe. He said, oh, he just didn't have the right skill set for that particular problem. So he didn't have the right skill set, but the whole of the system of government apparently didn't have the right skill set. So we are in a apparent vortex of decline in Britain in terms of public service capabilities, state capabilities, trust in government, confidence in ministerial and civil service expertise. And so we're going to try and get to the bottom of this, but not focusing on the he's just the wrong guy at the wrong place type of level, but more at the level of system, systems of governance. And there's nobody who can tell us more about this than Gwyn Bevan, who is Professor of Policy Analysis in the Management Department at LSE, and has been working in the field of particularly health regulation and other kinds of very sophisticated and difficult public administration tuning of systems for more years than he probably cares to remember. And this book is really a sort of a capstone book for his whole experience over that period and an attempt to try and get us to think about these systemic issues that underlie the problems that we now seem to be in. And also on the panel we have Abby Innes, who's just published a really interesting book with Cambridge University Press. She's from the Department of European Studies at LSE. And her book is called Late Soviet Britain, which sort of gives you a little bit of a message in the title. And I'm sure we all feel that way as we gaze at the empty shelves in Waitrose and wait 23 hours for our ambulance to admit us to the hospital. Anyway, Abby is uh, going to talk about Gwyn's book, but she's also uh, an expert on many other aspects of politics going beyond that. And finally, Rosamund Taylor, who's um, one of the co-authors, uh, co-editors of uh, LSE Press's first book called uh, Democratic Audit of the UK 2018, which I was also involved with. We thought things were bad, but we didn't think they would get this bad. That's all I can say. And uh, Ros is working on a book, uh, well, her book is coming out on political trust, and that's obviously a key aspect of where we are at the moment with the vortex of decline problem that we have in Britain. But to kick us off, before we get to a panel discussion, Gwyn is going to take us through some of the things. Now, his book is very wide-ranging, so he can't cover the whole thing, but he's going to cover the most topical bits. Over to you, Gwyn. Thank you so much.
Okay, well, good evening. Um, um, welcome to you all. I'm so grateful for you coming this evening, friends and family being here. I also have a huge debt of gratitude to uh, all those at LSE Press. Um, Patrick, who is a great editor, Alice Park, Lucy Lamb and Ellie Potts, who've done so much to help me with the book and organise this event. <clears throat> and I can recommend, if you did want to publish a book, there's no better place to go than LSE Press. Is that okay, Patrick? Is yes, I'll okay? give you <laughs> ten pounds later on. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, as Patrick said, um, what I'm trying to do is to understand why things are so neck. Tim is one of my heroes. Anyway, um, <laughs> you're not going to ask any difficult questions. No, no, you're not going to do that. Okay, that's fine. I just want to check on that before I start. Um, I mean, what I've been trying to do here is what on earth has happened to Britain over my lifetime? Um, and things seem so terrible now, as Patrick said. I mean, watching the COVID inquiry, you know, we knew things were bad at the time, but what comes out there is just so shocking. Um, NHS has now got 8 million waiting times. The Joseph Rowntree Foundation recent report identified a million children that are destitute. There's the uh, Public Accounts Committee inquiry into the failure of electricity regulation in which bulb went bankrupt and had to be bailed out to a cost of £6 billion, which is increasing the cost of energy this year. Now, the theme of my book is the reason why things are so terrible, which is what Patrick hinted at, is because every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. So the systems we've got are designed to be dysfunctional and produce these terrible outcomes. That's the theme of the book. The way I've structured this lecture, and I aim to talk for about half an hour, and Patrick is going to not let me go on much longer than that, um, is the three big themes of the book. One is that to understand the way we're governed, you have to look at what I argue are the two major political settlements of the 20th century. The first one was Clement Attlee's Labour government from 1945 to 1951. And what they did, it was an extraordinary transformation of Britain for the better, as Peter Hennessy argued in his book, matched by no government before or since, was to tackle uh, Beveridge's five giant evils of want, disease, ignorance, squalor, and idleness. But what they were doing was tackling the problems of the 1920s and 1930s. And so by the 1970s, these systems where experienced various aspects of failure. And that was when uh, we elected Margaret Thatcher's government that ran from 1979 to 1991. And they created a new settlement designed to tackle the problems of the 1970s, which is what is known as neoliberalism. And I'm going to describe the logics of neoliberalism. But basically, the two key principles that I'm trying to get across is, one is that whereas the Atlee government aimed to tackle the problems of the minimal state, the Thatcher government said we can look at where government functions and we can use markets instead. And that means we can move markets into areas which economists show they're likely to fail. And by, that, by failure we mean they won't actually meet the interests of consumers. You, you're vulnerable to exploitation. So one principle is we can make markets work in incredibly difficult areas because we're so much cleverer now than we used to be. And the second is we're going to rely on private enterprises and the sole objective of private enterprises ought to be to make as much money as possible. And that's led into the financialized world in which we live today. 
So what we've let loose is, is these systems of governance where private enterprises are seeking to make as much money as possible in areas where the market's vulnerable to, their, to being exploited by them. And the final part of the talk is the most troubling part of all, which of the, first two, the first part and the final part will be relatively short. But this is this... I, whenever I do present these results, I just find them so shocking about the degree to which inequalities, geographical inequalities, have become entrenched in Britain today in a way unparalleled with other developed countries. So to start off, you know, the iconic image of the failures of the 1930s are the Jarrow Crusade, where 200 men walked from Jarrow for 300 miles to London, seeking work. Uh, unemployment was horrendously high there, but it was very high in the areas that are now being left behind. And if you were unemployed, you were subjected to the degradation and humiliation of the means test to get bare amount of subsistence for living. So that created want on a massive scale throughout Britain in the 1930s. And the individual who changed all that, as Nick Timmins' book spells out so well, Five Giants, is William Beveridge's report, which, extraordinary with a title, Social Insurance and Allied Services, was a bestseller in Her Majesty's Station. People queuing outside to get hold of this document. And I think there must, it's less than a gripping read, actually. Most of it is an analysis of how you could actually abolish want uh, through the resources of the, of the country. Beveridge was a famous uh, 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 director of LSE. He was one of the good and the great. The sad thing was, in his own opinion, he was one of the best. He was just an incredibly difficult person to get on with. And so Whitehall knew about that, so they made it very difficult for him to get in. And when he had got in, uh, they got him out again after a year. And the way they got, out, got him out was to give him a thankless task of chairing a working party from seven government departments to look at social insurance allied services with arid terms of reference, which was to do a survey and make recommendations. And he went home and wept because he realised what this meant. It was sort of the end of him contributing to the Second World War effort. But what he realised, uh, and I think it's John Stuart Mill's famous phrase is if you can inform the passion of the multitude against the self-interest of the few, you can await the outcome with quiet satisfaction. So he did that in two ways. One was by identifying these five giants that he said the post-war government needed to address. And the second was this detailed analysis showing how want could have been abolished in the 1930s. Of his five giant evils, the one he saw as most corrosive, however, was not want, and he recommended how you tackle want and disease, but actually idleness. And there, the key figure in the 20th century was John Maynard Keynes, who many would regard as the greatest economist of the 20th century, who had spent the 20s and 30s working out how you could tackle this persistent problem of high unemployment in areas of the United Kingdom. And he had a huge influence on the 1944 White Paper on employment policy that committed the post-war government to high and stable levels of employment. You can download this copy, which is a fact which has been annotated by Margaret Roberts, 
then reading chemistry at Somerville College, Oxford. I think not many chemistry undergraduates would have bought that book, that uh, white paper. She, for, this, for her, this was complete anathema. The idea that government should do anything against for unemployment was just ridiculous. Hence, she was inspired by, by a book also came out in 1945, Friedrich von Hayek's Road to Serfdom. Hayek had been recruited as an economics professor at LSE to take on the Keynes argument we should do something against unemployment and was an inspiration. Margaret Thatcher was enraptured by this book that explained how you have to get rid of socialism for good. And she then, uh, better known as in her married name, Margaret Thatcher, led the Conservative government to a decisive victory in the 1979 general election, which, which established the Thatcher settlement. Um, and, the, the, I mean, there's this very famous poster from that campaign that focused on the breaking of the linchpin of the Atlee settlement, which was all about maintaining high and stable levels of employment. And two years later, her ideological soulmate, Ronald Reagan, was elected President of the United States. He, too, had been inspired by Hayek's road to serfdom. And he summarized what neoliberalism was about in one sentence, which is that government's the problem and we have to use markets. Eight years later, uh, they both seem to be vindicated by the fall of communists. There's a picture of the Berlin Wall falling down. And Margaret Thatcher's mantra, there is no alternative, seemed to be shown by the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe. An analysis just afterwards showed how, to what degree, communism had failed, with GDP per capita in the communist East being about a quarter of what it was in the market-based West. So that's the background in terms of these two political settlements. And what I want to now explain, as I said, these two logics of neoliberalism. Now, where neoliberalism drives its authority from is the economics bible, Adam Smith's 1776 Wealth of Nations, that explains how for vital goods we actually look to the market where people pursue self-interest. And so for neoliberalism, the idea is that's how we should organize society. We should always use markets driven by people who seek to make profits. But the point I want to emphasize, and this is not where I'm going to give you a half-hour lecture on economics of transaction costs, you'll be relieved to know, is that if you think about the market for bread, there's a set of very stringent characteristics the market for bread satisfies. As consumers, we, you know, we can specify what we want, we know what we're getting, we can assess the price and quality, we, we, we're not going to be screwed by, by people selling bread. And the market structure also is designed to work extremely well with many buyers and if people, if a supplier is doing really badly, their legs can get replaced by someone else. Now the key argument in the economics of transaction costs is whether you decide to use the market or not depends on whether these conditions are satisfied, what we call having low transaction costs. And if that is the case, you'd be mad not to use the market. And it's said, you know, when Soviet planners visited London in the, in the 1950s, that ask questions like, who decides how much bread you produce for London? They find it bewildering that the market would do that. And we also know there were tragedies in uh, the Soviet system and in China uh, from the collectivization of agriculture with famines in which millions died. 
Um, and bread satisfies what, it, you know, this is uh, Adam Smith's metaphor, famous metaphor, the invisible hand. It, it just works. You don't write contracts, you don't see, it, 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 you know, it seems to work like magic. But the issue we face, of course, is for many goods and services, they do not satisfy these stringent characteristics. And Andre Schleifer, a Harvard economist, a big advocate of neoliberalism, outsourcing, and privatization, points to the way in which economic thinking shifted from the time of the Attlee settlement when they identified a whole long list of services which, which did not satisfy the characteristics of bread for the market to work, where they thought government hierarchy would be better and the invisible hand of the market would fail. We know that in Britain that... Um, at the end of the uh, Second World War, the privatised railway system and privatised coal industry were failing and had to be nationalised. But we could see that these other services worked much better in the market than under government control. Michael Barber talks about moving to a house and wanting a new phone and being told they'd run out of telephone numbers. Um, so, and Schleifer says that what we ought to harness is private ownership that introduces this drive for economy innovation that government lacks. And so when we think about utilities, what we can do is we shouldn't think about government hierarchy. We should use the, the market, but here we have the visible hands working of explicit contracts and reliance on regulation. As I said, the second uh, logic of neoliberalism is that you should make as much money as possible and Friedman was worried in 1970 <clears throat> that executives were seeking other social goals other than profit maximization. Basically, what this means is if you're a privatized water company, you should pollute as much as possible, provided you can make money. And what we've had under this idea that enterprises should maximize profit is the financialization of corporations. So there's this worry about how you design this is Sandy Pepper's got a wonderful book on this, on executive remuneration, the unresolved problem that we face with. Uh, and these are all get generous packages, provided they satisfy a set of financial indicators. And that works within a world of financialized company, of private equity, seeking to maximize profits by loading companies with debt and using tax havens and hedge funds looking to speculate against firms collapsing. Obviously, it's a big problem with Friedman's uh, argument that uh, private enterprise seeks to maximize profit, as Fred Hirsch argued in this wonderful book in 1976, that you can make so much money staying within the rules, but what if you manipulate the rules? You can make even more money then. And so we have, uh, as you know, uh, our privatized water companies are based in tax havens. That makes a lot of sense. If you want to maximize profits, then obviously moving to tax havens is what you ought to do. Now, there's this wonderful book by Katerina Pistor about the code of capital. And basically, she argues that the way the legal system has developed is to enable people to make vast amounts of profits while, you know, by loading companies with debt. And when, then, when they collapse, you hang on to the profits and the rest of us bear the losses. Uh, so this is the financialized rules of the game, as we know, are that you privatize profits and socialize losses. And in this book, she has extraordinary accounts of Lehman Brothers as being particularly skilled as this in the state of Delaware that has particularly liberal rules so you can um, make money by paying out dividends as you head for financial collapse. 
and um, the Court of Chancery that protected Lehman Brothers when the subsidiary went bankrupt. So <clears throat> if we look at what neoliberalism, the way neoliberalism played out in these two examples of privatization and outsourcing, there's this extraordinary observation now looking back from where we now stand in terms of Ian Byatt, the first director general of Ofwat. Uh, he worked in the Treasury and was aware that nationalized industries didn't work very well and thought privatization would work better. But what he's promising here is not that they'll do better than government, but actually we could replicate what went on as if it were a perfect market, like the market for bread. And the other thing to notice is that in 2002, this is the time of the Blair-Brown government, this is why I talk about political settlements, Thatcher settlement applied basically to the Blair government as well, it was, as parties changed in government, it didn't matter. And they were warned in 2002 in a report that remains confidential to the markets authority that what that would result in, of course, is what we know now, which is sewage in our seas and rivers. Now, <clears throat> the other argument that Schleifer had about the benefits of neoliberal reforms in using markets was with outsourcing. Now, outsourcing by government is a complicated market to get to work well. Because, first of all, the, the, what you're dealing with, like H, the HS2 de Barclay, is much more complicated than buying bread when you write a contract for that. As the government, you are the single buyer. There aren't many buyers. And we also experience what Williamson describes as the fundamental transformation. While there's competition where people uh, make a bid in the first place, after the contract's left, you're left in a monopoly position. So this failing supplier often has to get bailed out to continue to do the work. And the other problem we've had, alongside these inevitable uh, transaction costs of using the market, market difficulties, is um, a whole series of mergers and acquisitions. Um, and the government now has a series of strategic suppliers. Now, mergers and acquisitions make the, the market work less well because obviously it reduces the competition by having a few big players in the market. Um, and the other thing that it's done is to reduce the competence of these large merged enterprises. They're moving into areas where they have no expertise. So they would make contracts at low prices to win the contract, then discover they couldn't actually deliver against the price that they'd, that, 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 that they'd agreed to. So what we've had here is financialization actually undermines the rationale of outsourcing. The rationale of outsourcing is I can buy someone to come in who's got more expertise than I have. But what you're turning to is a large merged enterprise that actually isn't capable of organizing delivery of goods and services. And uh, the, the, there's this awful example of this. I mean, when you read about this, it makes your hair stand on end, the collapse of Carillion, a strategic supplier on a massive scale. So when it was liquidated, it had no assets of values in such a parlous state. The way financialization plays out is a hedge fund can make millions of pounds, but pensioners and subcontractors end up being owed billions. We, I mean, the issue that we face, as I know when I teach my course with Simon Bustow here, um, people who come from the private sector who are contracting say they send their five-star generals in to negotiate with government and they meet people in their 20s. 
contracting is not something that you know, people at the top of the civil service take seriously. So we're not surprised that there are these contractual failures that you know, the government continued to issue new contracts, issued a, a billion pound contract for HS2 to Carillion while it's heading for collapse. The prisons it was expected to maintain were, were in poor state and two hospitals were built with serious structural flaws. But what is most troubling about this is that, you know, we're disappointed but not surprised by these contracting failures. But there's this devastating report from the House of Commons, joint report from two select committees, highlighting a series of regulatory failures. So the remuneration committee was untroubled about the fact this company's heading for financial collapse. They hired a firm of consultants to come in to benchmark Carillion events and other enterprises of similar size to work out how much they ought to be paid. The government had a prompt payment code for private sector to be paid within 60 days. Carillion violated that to such an extreme degree that if you wanted payment it was in 60 days, you, they required a discount. The auditor gave a set of completely misleading accounts, which is again not surprising because we know auditors do that on a regular basis. But what's deeply troubling is the Financial Reporting Council is established, this is the auditor of the auditors, and they did nothing to correct this, and the pensions regulator also allowed it to incur a massive pensions deficit. So you can understand why privatisation outsourcing hasn't worked too well. But the final, and for me the most troubling thing about this, are these entrenched inequalities we have in the United Kingdom. And this goes back to Margaret Thatcher's rejection of government having any role at all in employment policy. And so what happened in the 1980s was this extraordinary belief that all we needed to do was control the money supply and that resulted, and also with North Sea Oil, the currency uh, increased dramatically against the dollar and we had the deindustrialization of Britain creating the areas that are left behind. Uh, but the other thing that makes it so difficult for people in deprived areas to, to, to escape is the financialization of housing. The Financial Times recently pointed out that this has become as lucrative uh, for builders as oil companies found the Ukraine war with a 30% return on assets. So the profit per house has increased by tenfold over about eight years. This chart shows the ratio of median house price to earnings. Uh, and there's what's no basically uh, you know, Hayek's argument is that the market is much more democratic than elections because in elections a lot of votes get lost, particularly our first-past-the-post system. The market you know, responds to everyone with money, but of course you have to have a lot of money. And if you're a billionaire, then we have what's known as the champagne tower effect. So the billionaires move into Kensington and Chelsea and then drive the millionaires out into the rest of London, who then move to Oxford and Cambridge, which is where we live, and then they move to the rest of the country. And so you end up, even in really poor places, the most deprived parts of Britain, the median house price to earnings is fourfold. This is that John Byrne Murdoch is a wonderful data analyst now working for the Financial Times. And he did this recent analysis looking at what the contributions are of the richest city to GDP per capita of each country. As you can see, of these three countries there, it ranges from 1% to 5%. This is London, 14%. And he showed that the rest of the UK is poorer than Mississippi. 
This is an analysis looking at GDP per capita of the poorest regions in UK, Italy, and West and East Germany. Now, I think to notice here is that uh, West Germany is in orange and East Germany is in red. And the poorest regions in East Germany are now at the same level as in West Germany. And the British uh, regions are in blue, and you can see the three poorest Britain regions are now worse off than the poorest regions of East Germany. Remember that in 1991, GDP per capita in East Germany is about a quarter of what it was in the West. So whilst, East, whilst Germany's managed, in uh, Boris Johnson's famous phrase, to make progress in levelling up, we've actually created massive entrenched inequalities. And the two areas here that, that are most deprived always vie with each other, which is West Wales and the valleys and the North East. We are richer than the poorest regions in Italy, but they are scarred by these varieties of organised crime, and Calabria, if it was a country, would be described as a failed state. To say we're actually our poorest regions are better off than Italy isn't actually a source of pride. The other stunning thing about this is the ratio of rich to poor. Now, I've picked Italy and Germany because these are countries where we would expect there to be structured massive inequalities from history, the history of communism and the history of organised crime. But the ratio is only threefold. This is Britain with a ratio of eightfold between inner London West and the poorest region in England. And then, this is a Joseph Rowntree analysis this year showing the degree of poverty in the United Kingdom, showing again the, you know, the North East and Wales having about a quarter people living in poverty. And, you know, this is not my... <laughs> Nick's good at this. Uh, it's not my subject of expertise, social insurance, but I find, why is it that William Beveridge uh, showed that in the 1930s, we were a college want, where now we're five times richer than we were then, and we still have areas where a quarter are living in poverty. And actually, this, this isn't quite... This is London. So in one of the richest cities in the world, about a quarter of people are living in poverty. Now, as we all know, of course, um, there are these three dimensions of inequality, which is income, location, and good education. And these are all obviously related to each other. And this is a recent analysis of the, in the Financial Times of the left axis is, um, is median house prices and the right axis and the red line is the school regional premium you pay above the average house price to live in the catchment area of a good school. And there's enormous pressure now to send your parents to, parents send their children to good state school because uh, it's estimated that to send them to prep school and public schools, you're talking about half a million pounds. And Oxford and Cambridge have changed their admissions policies. So 90% come in from state schools. So you're spending a vast amount of money for a much lower return than you would have had uh, a generation ago. And basically this indicates that in these very desirable parts of London, um, Manchester, Liverpool and Birmingham, you're paying actually about half a million pounds extra to get into... This, this is a very approximate analysis, it's just what I'm using. But we're paying a vast amount of money to live next to a good school. And in this article, they talk about people having a pedometer to go and work out where they're going to buy their house to make sure they're in the catchment area of a good school. 
And of course, what that then leads on to is that, you know, provided your parents are rich, you're in a good place, you get a good school education, you get a good degree, you, and then your banker mum and dad can enable you to move into the Golden Trial of Oxford and Cambridge, you can get a high income, and so it goes on. There's this wonderful book by Fiona Hill, who uh, she describes as going from Coal House to White House. Um, she, uh, and she explains that throughout her life in England or in Britain, there were these three questions people used to ask that she thought at first were innocent, but she later realized are designed to place you very accurately. Where are you from? She was from Bishop Auckland in the Northeast. What does your father do? He used to be a minor. Which school did you go to? The local comprehensive. Getting all those questions wrong, when she was growing up in the 1980s, meant she struggled to get from Bishop Auckland. In the end, she got a doctorate at Harvard and became advisor to Donald Trump and testified against him. But the barriers uh, now will be so much greater than they were in the 1980s. And she, in her book, she argues that the, the, the experiences of the people she, you know, her mother and those still living in Bishop Auckland and what happened there are echoed with what happened in the United States. And so she sees the way neoliberalism played out both here in the United States as resulting in people voting for Donald Trump and voting for Brexit. And Ronald Reagan's inaugural address in 1981, where he said government is not the solution to our problems, government is the problem, began by remarking this wonderful thing that, took, that everyone took for granted in the United States, which is the smooth transfer of authority from one president to another, remarking that many other countries would regard this as a miracle. Of course, we know that ended in January 2021, and I would argue that the policies that Ronald Reagan introduced in the United States actually caused that outcome. Hence, my conclusion is, in our current crisis, market failures are the problem of the government, and we need a new political settlement. Thank you very much. Well, now, uh, ask Abby to give us a, a few comments and uh, reactions. Thank, you. Thank you, know you very much. Do you know how I find my... Uh, oh, you just go on. Just go, sorry, click. The clicker. Uh, sorry, the clicker. that one there. Sorry, I've turned it over. You, you, you'll pick these magic, this guy. So, yeah, there you are. Fantastic. Thank you very much. So, um, first of all, uh, thank you for allowing me to get an early look at this important and extremely useful book, landing as it does in the middle of the worst state failures uh, this country has experienced since universal suffrage. So I want to highlight three particular virtues of the book from my perspective, but in order to do that, I probably have to explain this slightly counterintuitive title. Um, so the Cold War and its aftermath taught us that Soviet socialism and neoliberalism, Thatcherism, are ideological opposites. And it is entirely true insofar as the everyday political values of these doctrines could not be further apart. When you ask how they understand the nature of political economic reality, however, this dichotomy proves false. From a philosophy of science perspective, both Soviet and neoliberal doctrines are based on closed system 
reasoning from assumption. And this sets them fundamentally apart from the open system economic reasoning uh, from observation that characterized the post-war governmental doctrines uh, of the West. So in methodological terms, both Soviet economics and the neoclassical economics behind neoliberal policies are built from axiomatic deduction. They're built from argument from axioms rather than from hypothetical deduction, more commonly known as the scientific method, namely uh, reasoned analysis starting from empirical observation. Based as it is on formal mathematics rather than Marxist-Leninist economic sociology, the neoclassical economics behind Britain's neoliberal, neoliberal revolution is actually the more completely abstract and dehistoricized of these two utopias. So, I mean, what could possibly go wrong? So, both Leninist and Thatcherite economic orthodoxies are tautological and circular in their reasoning. The actions that follow from their assumptions are valid, as distinct from true, by virtue only of their logical formulation. And their end goals are are consequently as impossible to realize as they are to refute. So, as I set out in late Soviet Britain, deterministic economic doctrines induce the systematized, organized forgetting of the social and institutional dynamics that are not conformable to the theory. And they are doomed in practice to produce a rising tide of unanticipated social and institutional consequences. Why is that? Because there is no Archimedean point where we can stand to ascertain exactly how society reached the place that it has reached. And the very fact of human imagination and emerging novelty in complex systems means that even if by some miracle we were to attain a godlike understanding of the past, the future is going to be different anyway. Human societies are open, evolving, and inescapably uncertain systems. And for better or worse, our freedoms depend on that openness. So that's my perspective. From this perspective, Gwynne's book is profoundly useful for at least three reasons. The first is that his analysis is resolutely reality-based. It applies the scientific method. It is built on empirical observation of and concern for Britain's real social conditions, with those conditions operating as the starting point for a critique of the economic theories that motivated policy. From schools to health to housing, Gwynne identifies the perverse, unanticipated effects of the market and quasi-market strategies of the last 40 years. He is forensic in showing how the too often discrete policy assumptions about the informed rationality of the actors involved, the sufficiency of cost-benefit analysis, and the presumption of productive corporate behavior only blindsided policymakers, regulators, and practitioners to the likely outcomes. He reveals the perverse incentives to focus on the most easily met targets, which by no means may be the ones uh, that service users really uh, need. Regarding welfare services, he sets out how the necessary discretion for expertise and the time for human care were progressively hollowed out in pursuit of an abstract and indeed utopian efficiency. We get to see in vivid detail how often the bureaucratic theatre of more business-like organisation introduced by agentification produced the lethal fragmentation of bureaucratic capacity and oversight with few, if any, of the promised market virtues emerging to compensate. 
So I guess all that I would add here is that output planning, targets, presumptions of enterprise rationality, and metric-driven managerialism are the methodological toolkit of Soviet planning. And we shouldn't be surprised by that convergence because the idealized free market and the perfect central plan are formal mirror images. It follows that their dogmatic pursuit must bring with it the only governmental toolkit fit for these closed system designs for some for supposedly computable systems within a presumptively computable world. This brings me to a second significant virtue, which is the seriousness with which Gwynne gets into both the nature of market failures at the contractual level, but also into the problem of financialization at the political, economic, systemic level. And that interdisciplinarity is essential to understand how we got here. Financialization is actually a very well-developed research field in political economy, yet it apparently remains conceptually foreign to the UK Treasury, and perhaps this is because it cannot even be conceived of in neoclassical economic terms. But financialization is demonstrably what happens when the maximization of shareholder value becomes the core purpose of the large business firm. What we get is not the competition through price and quality, promised in neoclassical theory, but an altogether easier process by which large firms, and actually the public service industry firm in particular, effectively cannibalize themselves by minimizing their own expenditures on everything from investment to training, while at the same time sweating their contracts and the assets under their control for purely financial gain. From my own point of view, when you strip away the rhetoric of markets in the new public management, What neoliberalism produced was not a new dawn of competitive provision, but a state that became a centralized giant of private enterprise procurement, planning, and largely failing coordination. We get the worst of all worlds, namely Soviet enterprise planning, but now in financially extractive capitalist form. If we take the case of outsourcing, Gwynne does an exceptional job of translating Oliver Williamson's very technical contract theory into plain English. By applying Williamson's insight that the more complex and uncertain the task at hand, the harder it's going to be to write a contract that can guard the buyer from the profit-maximizing shortcuts of the provider, Gwynne anatomizes the nature and costs of those failures. In doing so, he cites both the Public Accounts Committee on the problem of ineffective contracting and weak competition, but he also adds in this systemic financialization of providers into the frame. But what if public sector outsourcing is just fundamentally misconceived? The original justification for this kind of outsourcing was based on the interface between end users and producers, which is the only available market story that could be told in neoclassical terms. But in reality, the only financial relationship, the only actual market relationship at hand in outsourcing is the relationship between the state and the provider and its subcontractors. And the state is not and can never be the standard economic agent of neoclassical theory, including contract theory. Even if the state could exactly codify its preferences for every contract uh, around complex services over their typically very long lifespan, the state remains financially, legally, and politically liable for failures in private production. And that is a liability that is unique to the democratic state. It is also a liability that the private sector understands all too well. Thus, while contract theory remains valuable in understanding the chronically asymmetric nature 
of contracts between the state and these providers. I think it's Soviet planning failures that can tell us more about how the state embarks on bargaining games with firms that it cannot win, that it will never win, and why real systems built on closed system rationalistic theories go on to produce a grotesque parody of the production regimes that were promised. This brings me to the third and final virtue, and if I had more time, there would certainly be more. The third gift, in my view, is the book's periodization through the four political settlements of the long 20th century. Another way to define a political settlement is as a political economic paradigm. In Thomas Kuhn's analysis of paradigm shifts and scientific revolutions, the replacement paradigm is supposed to have resolved not just the puzzles that defeated the previous paradigm, but also the emerging analytical anomalies that had undermined it. When Thomas Kuhn demonstrated that science was not straightforwardly cumulative, he was not a relativist. He was not arguing against the possibility of scientific progress as such, only that normal, non-revolutionary scientific progress should be understood as a growing capacity to solve problems not as some increase in some essentialist verisimilitude. As Gwynne sets out, and I absolutely agree, neoliberal economics constructed a series of fictions through metaphors and models, and under neoliberalism, society was expected to conform to them. A set of fictions that would claim to explain all economic dynamics while proving highly misleading about almost all of them. In social science terms, this is incredibly poor theory building. It strips out inconvenient factors that mess up the neatness of the theory despite their obvious salience to the question in practice. In party political and governmental terms, it leaves elites who remain determined to rely on neoclassical economic reasoning completely marooned in circular analyses so that a kind of chronic analytical introversion and myopia becomes the defining feature of late neoliberal regimes, even as they start to collapse under the weight of their own internal contradictions. Kuhn pointed to what became known as Kuhn losses, namely the losses of knowledge and forms of understanding attached to the previous scientific paradigm, the previous political settlement in our case. The tragedy, as I see it for us as a society, is that neither Thatcherism nor Blairism were a paradigm shift in any remotely scientific sense, though that is what they essentially believed of their own governmental doctrines. I think we moved from the post-war era of policymaking through observation and practical problem-solving in a clearly uncertain world to 40 years of policymaking based on the expectation that society would voluntarily conform to an essentially utopian economic blueprint. Neoliberal economics is a utopia masquerading as a governmental science, whether in its first best world, Thatcherite, or second best world, market failure mending, Blairite versions. Why is even the latter view that critically focuses on market failures scarcely less utopian than Thatcherism? Well, because if you assume that by mending microeconomic points of market failure, you move the economy closer to the efficient ideal, then you are still absolutely confusing logical movement in a more sophisticated but still deterministic formal theory with the possible and actual dynamics of a real, constantly evolving capitalist economy. Neoclassical theories of market failure are very useful 
but they should be used in a highly pluralistic way and subordinated to analyses, system analyses, based on the scientific method, on non-utopian reasoning from observation of emerging dynamics and social problems. What Gwyn offers here, <coughs> with, this deep, with his deep hinterland of earlier solutions and their arguments, and the arguments that justified them, is exactly an archive of Kuhn losses and how they occurred only to be replaced by utopian analytical conceits that have never been and will always be impossible, sorry, that will always be impossible to reproduce in practice. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, well, we'll move to uh, Roz Taylor, who's uh, going to tell us a bit about trust-related aspects of the issue. And uh, then uh, uh, at the end of Roz's thing, we'll be going straight to questions, and including questions from our live YouTube audience. So uh, if anybody out there would like to start formulating questions and bang them in, we'd, we'd love to see them. But also, you've got 10 minutes to formulate your own questions, and then we'll be off. And then we'll have half an hour of questions, following which there will actually be a drinks and nibbles reception outside. So... Let that sustain you as we go into the last line. Ross. Thanks so much, Abby. Well, Abby and Gwyn have talked a lot about the past, uh, and I want to talk a bit about the future, which is the uh, topic of my, of my book. When I started thinking about trust, I discovered three things. Well, I discovered a lot of things, but I'm going to talk to you about three of them because that's easier. How many, many things we have to trust in the modern world, the huge labour involved in persuading others to trust us, how hard it is to measure trust in a way that would satisfy a quantitative political scientist. It's a very, very elusive concept to define. I, the closest I could probably get to it was T.S. Eliot's infinitely gentle, infinitely suffering thing. It's, it switches, it changes... It's very, very hard to measure. And yet how vital and how precarious trust is to the functioning of society and especially to the functioning of the welfare state. Just think about the way conservatives prefer to characterise the welfare state. Labour, of course, thinks of it differently as eradicating beverages, five evils, as we've already discussed. But the conservatives tend to perceive it as a safety net. And that is an apt metaphor because it's a thing that allows you to take risks in the knowledge that you won't end up destitute. But, of course, people want and expect much more of the state than that. The social contract is fundamentally about institutional trust. Willingness to pay taxes in exchange for public services, trust. The readiness to take a medicine your doctor prescribes and the NHS supplies, trust. The confidence to pay into national insurance or a pension in the knowledge that you'll be supported in old age, trust again. But when people see the state doing things like cutting benefits, pulling big infrastructure projects, letting schools fall into disrepair, a different mindset develops. And this is what I think we have been seeing in recent years in Britain. Uncertainty, fear, and an understandable urge to hoard money and especially property because that offers a degree of security in an uncertain world. 
on the individual level, after all, NIMBYism is an entirely rational response to insecurity, scarce housing, and high rents. We know that the social contract in Britain is starting to break down. We know from recent research that young people especially feel that they are overtaxed, overcharged for housing, and that accumulated wealth rather than hard work is the key to prosperity and success in modern Britain. They are reluctant to pay higher taxes because of all those things, and who can blame them, frankly? Marginal tax rates on young people with small children are around 70-odd percent because of the student loan system. Meanwhile, we have an older generation that sees the misery and indignity of the failing social care system and knows that they can no longer rely on the state to look after them at the end of their lives. And the better off among them know that they also have the power to improve the lives of their own descendants if the state won't. And that is something that you heard Gwyn talking about with the social capital that parents are able to pass on to their children. The same, of course, applies to inheritance. This is all deeply corrosive of societal trust. But during the pandemic, we saw a remarkable willingness to put trust in the NHS. Indeed, you will remember we were urged to act in the NHS's interests rather than the interests of the country as a whole. The readiness to follow complex self-denying rules in order to protect the NHS and elderly people. The willingness by most people to be injected with a novel vaccine. And as the work my former LSE colleague Tony Hockley has just done shows, which I recommend to you on vaccines and trust, it's hard to overestimate the level of societal trust that that demands. And later, considerable anger when it turned out that the people who made these emergency rules and laws were not following them. In many cases, were laughing at them, as we are hearing in the COVID-19 inquiry at the moment. So you can argue, and people have, that the pandemic was simultaneously a testament to Britain's faith in their institutions and a betrayal of that faith. Britain is not alone in these problems. There is no doubt that institutional trust is falling almost everywhere. Places like Finland and Denmark always accept it, where it seems to hold up remarkably well. Trust in political institutions in particular is falling. So what is replacing it? Some people are turning to interpersonal trust. There is a commune in Paraguay which bans any kind of written agreements between its members. They want to rely entirely on their confidence in each other and they simply will not sign anything because they believe that face-to-face -face interpersonal communication and trust must and should be paramount. Others are putting much more trust in business. This is quite a new phenomenon. We are seeing increased levels of trust in some corporations. And you can understand why they are trusted, because it is in their immediate interest to provide a good service. Gwyn reminded us about Adam Smith and explained it far better than I can. And we see a clear and regulated line of accountability there between buyer and seller. But as Gwyn's work has shown, that kind of relationship is just not possible when you're using a public service. Accountability cannot be clear in the same way. The relationship cannot simply be transactional. Choice can, cannot necessarily be king and regulate the service. 
there is no adequate refund for medical negligence that kills a child. HS2 was debated and approved for years in Parliament. Half of it was axed in a single speech by a Prime Minister who was appointed by his own party. Your eligibility for universal credit, if you get it, depends on a combination of one person's hasty judgment and increasingly an algorithm that that person does not understand and you probably wouldn't either if you could see it. You get the chance to change a government every four or five years at a time of the government's choosing and with a vote of wildly varying weight depending on where you live in Britain. And you can begin to understand then why the better off and the internationally mobile might eventually choose to live somewhere with much less democracy but functioning public services. And here I'm thinking of the... You could think of them as semi-utopian. You could also think of them as dystopian. The kind of cities that Mohammed bin Salman is planning to build in Saudi Arabia. Intensely surveilled, incredibly good public services, no democracy whatsoever. So a new welfare state and a trustworthy welfare state has to do things very differently. It has to re-establish trust even as the decisions it makes become increasingly opaque and complex. It has to be efficient, that means making the most of things like, like AI, but it also has to be compassionate and understanding of the many people who will struggle to grasp how it works. It has to, just in the pandemic, just as in the pandemic, understand the trade-offs that happen in a crisis and arbitrate between them in a way that is fair to all generations. The need to reopen schools before pubs in a pandemic, for example. The need to build housing, sometimes spoil people's views so that the whole of society isn't damaged by the social evils that come from homelessness and bad housing. None of that will happen without trust in the integrity of the decisions the state makes. And as Abby has pointed out, trust in a materialist utopia will inevitably be betrayed. So re-establishing institutional trust is going to be both very, very difficult for the next government and it will also be absolutely vital. Thank you. Well, thanks to all the panellists. Let's see if we can get some discussion going in the hall and possibly online as well. Um, I'm really keen on questions, so uh, yes, let's take three at a time. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thank you very much. Uh, the name's Ewan Grant. I was a former intelligence analyst at Customs and Excise when I saw the sort of collapse of the state and total collapse of trust. Um, we had such a problem with corruption and mismanagement, they had to parachute in a team from MI5 and MI6 to clear it out. 
trust had gone. My question is um, for you all. Um, building a new settlement, which organizations or types of individuals should be most closely involved and which organizations and types of individuals should not be allowed anywhere near it? <laughs> Thanks, great question. Let's see if we can get some more. Um, you can ask questions to Gwen or Abby or Sandy Pepper. So this might be the same question in a slightly different way, but it's, um, I was very taken by an article in The Guardian the other day by Gavin Esler who said, why do we put up with it? Um, and I guess that's the question. Why do we put up with it and what can we do about it? Okay, great. And one last question from younger people, maybe. Oh. Well, slightly younger. <laughs> <laughs> younger heart, no doubt, yeah. Uh, you mentioned that um, the Attlee government was solving the problems of before the war, and the Thatcher government was trying to solve, again, the problems previous to it in the 60s and 70s. What <laughs> mistake are we currently making that is similar to that? Will we be trying still to solve the problems of 20 years ago? Okay. So we've got three questions. Building a new settlement, who should be allowed to pioneer it and who should be kept away? Uh, Sandy Pepper's a uh, really good, good question, which actually relates back to his brilliant book with LSE Press, which is called, If You're So Moral, How... If You're So Ethical, How Come You're So Highly Paid? And uh, really uh, tackles the huge you know, inequality that's been created around uh, corporate executive pay. So why do we put up with it? Um, perhaps the answer is the same as, as in your book, that it's a structural issue and you've got to get out of it. And then the last question was about what are we doing wrong now, really, just right now, but we don't know that we're doing wrong. So, Gwyn. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, in, 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 my, in my book... Um, what I wanted to do was to enable each of you contribute to debate on how we change things. And I have read books where the final chapter comes up with a solution to all our problems, which I find completely unconvincing, really. And, you know, in a sense, the model for me is the Beveridge Report, which identified these giant evils and focused on one of them. And what I've done is to try and focus on, as is clear from Abby's wonderful summary as well, is this system of neoliberalism. Um, and what we've ended up with, I mean, the Atlee government put a lot of emphasis on central planning and central government, and the Thatcher government then effectively stripped out everything else apart from the markets. So we've got an over-centralised and over-marketised state. So my uh, argument is that what we ought to do is to go for a radical form of regional devolution, and this, is, this would be part, I mean, this is thinking out loud, you know, thinking out loud. I mean, I, I think the regions should run healthcare, they should run education. I think many universities should be run by the regions, get integrated with a local economy, and move out of this this way and treat them all as if they're the same. Um, but you need to have some system of holding them to account because Wales and Scotland are devolved, but often their public services are worse than in England. Um, and I, in the book I describe it, Italy's health service having a national system that benchmarks the different regions 
together with the regions, um, having learning, a learn, learning system so they can learn from the best. And the, the part of that would be that then in Whitehall, because Whitehall's terrible at running services, it's terrible at contracting. The sort of vision, this is just, you know, these are just mad ideas anyway, but I think you should have ministers who are responsible for things like obesity or well-being, you know, they have goals and then you hold regions to account. Um, and so that's the sort of indicate. I mean, and in terms of, I mean, the, the, what's obviously terrible about what's going on in terms of our leaders, and the, you know, with the COVID inquiry shows the, the corruption that follows once you've got someone like Boris Johnson there, that you've got, you know, these leaders are chosen, it was your point, I mean, it's by members of the Conservative Party, you know, I mean, the, the, the process we have, of, in, and, and I just think having MPs choosing prime ministers, leaders of the parties, would be much better than the system we've got, the theatre of democratisation. Why do we put up with it? I think, I think the thing is, the, the you know, the, the promise that <laughs> Brexit was supposed to offer a new political settlement. That's why I can see why people in the areas have been left behind voted for Brexit. You know, there's this observation in one of the debates where one woman was told, you know, this is going to, you know, damage the growth in GDP. And she said, it's not my GDP, you know. And these analyses I show of various GDP per capita. So that's the problem that we've had, is that they voted for one dramatic settlement. And, of course, we're impoverished as a consequence. Um, and, I, I, you know, the, the, the government was able, you know, to build on the beverage report to set, you know, and there's this change in society. And I think that gets, it gets into Rosie's point about trust, because in the end, the Atlee government was able to do things because they were so confident in doing so many things. Now this government can barely do anything or, 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 other than organise piss-ups in Downing Street, you know. Um, the, the thing about the failings now, I, I mean, my argument is that the failings we've got now are because of the political settlement of neoliberalism. And so and this is, as, as you explained that, so... What you've got, in, and it, it's what you argue, is a disconnect between the way government works and the problems we've got in society. Hence all this issue about flights through Rwanda and small boats and so on. I mean, this, this just looks to me a displacement activity, so people can focus on that rather than tackle the problems that we've got. So my argument is that what we need to... This is why I say we need a new political settlement to move away from neoliberalism, because all the issues that we've got, well, many of the issues we've got, I would argue follow from that. Abby, Rose, do you want to pick one each? Um, oh, okay, okay, quickly. Um, who should be involved, who should not be involved? I think because we're so centralised at this point, then I would totally agree with Wynne that we need some fairly meaningful devolution, uh, rebuilding of uh, local government, but also of regional government. But the centre needs to have a strategic oversight of these things and a balancing capacity in terms of um, finance. But I think we are astonishingly centralised at this point. It used to be said of Central Europe that countries like Hungary suffered from an overstrong metropole against uh, kind of the rest. And we've become more like that than we had been for centuries, and it's deeply economically dysfunctional. Who should be involved? Um, we need a re democratization of, of these new structures, I think. I think corporate confidentiality has put a lot of public spending behind a wall of opacity that is not good. Even parliamentary uh, select committees aren't able to see the full nature of a lot of contractual agreements. 
And one of the things that's a feature of neoliberalism as a mirror of the Soviet system is that both ideologies had uh, vanguards who were seen as carrying privileged knowledge about the true workings of the system. And in neoliberalism, that's the corporation. And I think the corporation does not have privileged knowledge about the nature of the good in society. I think it's a social actor like any other social actor. And so while corporations should be part of this story and consulted and so on, we should cease the idea that the corporate sector is a privilege or finance is a privileged domain that should remain somehow free of socioeconomic and ecological concerns. Um, Why do we put up with it? I think because neoliberalism has spent 40 years trying to depoliticize the economy. There is a naturalistic fallacy around free markets, which is in the nature of these Judeo-Christian utopias as materialist theology, you know, sort of secular theologies. The market is the revealed truth, right? How can you change a revealed truth? It's a, it's a given. You'll be breaching some natural predetermined law if you start to sort of fiddle around with markets. It's a, it's a function, it's an artifact of the utopia that we think in these terms. But it's also in the nature of an open society that is very marketized that there are lots of alternative explanations for why things go wrong. So in the Soviet system, when the state went wrong, everyone was dependent on the state. It was a centrally planned system. So everyone knew that it was failing. When they reformed the state to try and make it work better, everybody knew why those reforms were failing. In an open society that's very marketized, there are a lot of different explanations And people tend, after 40 years of Thatcherism, to blame themselves. It is a failure of personal responsibility if you're failing to thrive within the neoliberal marketplace, even though it would be better understood as a common tragedy from structural developments. Um, But I think there's also a tendency for conspiracy, conspiracy theories to grow up by way of explanations in the aftermath of utopias that masquerade as sciences, because science as an idea gets discredited. Science by association is just another, it's another science that fails, right? So I think the failure of neoliberalism as a science is very contaminating for how we understand, for example, actual science, like climate science. So I think there's been a huge contamination that follows from this form of reasoning. What are we doing wrong now? <laughs> I kind of think everything. <laughs> because we, we have a very dominant paradigm and the whole governmental methodology uh, from state to local level is essentially rooted in neoclassical reasoning. And it is not fit for purpose in an open system world. So we need some fairly radical paradigmatic changes in how we think about what government can do and the nature of the public good. I'm actually an optimist, though, weirdly. Because it opens up a whole world of possibility. If if we accept that a deterministic utopia has failed, we're actually in a very open territory in terms of how we would reconstruct these things. If we accept that we're not breaching predetermined economic laws, we can construct the society that we want. So that leaves me optimistic. Roz? Okay, uh, which organisations and individuals should build a new settlement? One of the most fundamental problems, I think, with government at the moment in Britain is the constant reshuffling of uh, 
cabinet and ministers so that people have sometimes days, sometimes weeks, if they're lucky, months to get to grips with a particular brief and by the time that they might start to understand that brief and make a difference, they are reshuffled elsewhere. And public policy generally is immensely reactive in this country. Brexit itself was a, was a form of massive reaction. Vote, leave, take back control. Of what? <laughs> yeah. It was never quite clear what, uh, but it was nonetheless important to take back control of something. Um, the, the, it is strongly driven by the press and by short-lived short-lived anger about initial subjects. And if we can get to a, a place where, you know, a beverage has time to think about how to best to reform a particular public service, then I think we will, we will come, come to better government. And hopefully that will start to happen. Why do we put up with it? I mean, funny, the easy answer is a lack of belief in the, that the politicians can change anything so that people simply opt out of the electorate. Um, I would also point out that there are a lot of very dynamic, uh, politically, often very politically active people who are um, excluded from uh, at least voting in this country because they are migrants. We have, been, we have taken in many, many migrants in the last uh, decade or so. We don't allow them to vote until they have citizenship, not in a, not in a meaningful way. They are discouraged from taking part in democracy, and that, to me, is an indictment of our state of mind as a country and our attitude towards them. What mistakes are we, are we making? Not being honest, I think, about the scale of change required, believing that so many things are off-limits. So many things in political discourse in this country are off-limits. Changing the taxation system uh, to, to one that might be more property or wealth-based, off-limits. Inheritance tax, off-limits. Um, none of this can be talked about, and this timidity feeds upon itself so that you see you know, the Labour Party worried about not being trusted to implement reforms and thereby continually scaling back the extent of its ambition because it is worried about over-promising and not being able to deliver, and it becomes a vicious circle where less and less is promised with the fear that people's hopes will be betrayed. I think it is time to, if we can, break out of that cycle and promise more. And that okay. is, that I think is the biggest, the biggest obstacle to change at the moment in this country. Great. Well, now we've also got some questions from our uh, larger online audience, so I'll just take three. Uh, the first one, Stephen Boxall says, can we say the Labour Party sees things in a different way to neoliberals when the Labour Party has largely brought into neoliberal thinking and methods? So that's, that's one to think about. James Bryce asks, the problems you identify have built up over decades. On what timescales might we envisage change and where would you start? Well, we've sort of begun that. <laughs> Slowly is the answer, but uh, still. Um, and uh, an anonymous user has asked, Professor Be Bevan has said we have a system that was designed for us. It's designed and by and run for globalist big capital and their helpers such as the top managerial class. How can citizens force a new political settlement when the political class by and large serves the interest of the global elite, globalist elite? I would have dismissed that as a... a 
conspiracy kind of question a couple of years ago, but now I don't know. <laughs> I'm inclined to believe it. Uh, so there we go. How can we um, uh, redesign it on a, on a timescale? How can we break out of globalist uh, things? What about the Labour Party and its okay. I'm an inability to grapple with neoliberalism in a I, I sustained well, yeah. way? I think it goes back to, to what Roz is saying, because I... I, I would like to see in, in the Labour Party do is what Utley's government did in 1945. I mean, you know, things are as terrible now, it feels to me, like the way they were in the 1930s. Um, but the, I mean, the circular, and, and the Labour, I mean, you know, if you think about what, you know, Tony Chavez has said this, you know, government struggles to do one thing well, like Brexit or Covid. You know, the, in the 19th, 45, 51, they did many things. There's demobilization, there's um, decolonization, there's the Cold War, you know, there's the American pressure on the economy. They create the National Health Service, <laughs> great system of state secondary education, build council houses, you know, and... Um, all in six years. All in six years. Yeah. Peter Hennessy said, you know, that was transformational. Mm. Uh, in very difficult circumstances, and... and, and and I just feel like, Ros, that, that the Labour Party should, I mean, you know, should be much more ambitious. Why on earth should you build, work for somebody who's going to do something a bit more competently than this sham, you know, the shambles we've got now? It just doesn't appeal to me. Um, well, a bit would be good. <laughs> <laughs> OK, right. Uh, the timescale for change. I, I, mean, I, I mean, I just think... Um, you have know, just to be much more ambitious. There should be some, you know, you can energise people to do dramatic things if you could create the environment for it. What was the, the final point was about... Um, yeah, the sort of globalist capture. Yeah, well, globalist I, well I think, it, I mean, there's this issue about, the, you know, as you said, I mean, the, the, I mean the, in terms of the media and rich people being in control of the media uh, and the reluctance to take on the financialised economy... Does indeed. That is a deeply troubling, troubling point. Abby, Ross, do you want to pick up one or two, please? Happy to uh, pick up the um, the point about the global elite. Um, I think people worried about <coughs> the, the global elite uh, should probably be reassured by what has been happening in the last two or three years since the pandemic, with uh, an increasing isolationism. We saw, we saw it with Brexit, we've seen it, we saw it under Trump, but uh, it's also continuing under Biden. Um, the focus on energy independence, which is completely understandable, but ultimately is, uh, let's, say, let's say, worrying, because we, we, could, we could do well to share and sell power to, to Europe, which we currently find it very difficult to do because we've left the uh, single market in electricity. Um, I think there is increasing isolationism and scepticism of global, uh, global uh, institutions in particular, but also of global uh, companies and the Bletchley Park um, gathering today uh, where with, uh, which Rishi Sunak has called to discuss AI is a sign uh, of the worries about uh, corporate power and its effects on democracy, though Sunak isn't quite framing it in that way. But the, the, uh, 
what, what could happen, not if AI runs out of control and kills us all, but if AI damages us in perhaps much more subtle uh, ways that we're starting to see it do. So, you know, I, 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 I'm not terribly worried about, you know, globally, I, I, think, I think people are waking up to, uh, to, to the extent to which the world is, is connected and beginning to question that. But we should be very careful not to move into, a, into an isolationist, fearful mode where we are reluctant to trade with anybody else because we simply see it as too dangerous, uh, too risky. Great. Abby? Yeah, on, on Stephen Boxall's uh, question about Labour, and you, um, so many things that New Labour did were fantastic. I mean, if you go back to the 2012 Olympics, it feels like a completely different country. Uh, from the one we live in now in terms of it's just altogether more kind of human outlook. Um, but there were, I think, two very fundamental problems with Blairism and I think a resurgence of that under a new Labour government under Starmer would be, frankly, disastrous. Which And those two things are an analytical dependence on market failures, neoclassical analysis of market failures. I think tinkering with microeconomic market failures in the face of a massive structural crisis is not going to crack it. It's not going to be enough. Another aspect of Blairism was a naivety around large corporations. And, and I think there is a risk uh, going forward that the City of London and large corporations, particularly public service industry firms, would say, well, we're not investing because of the current climate, but if you, you know, if Labour gets back in, oh, there'll be a wall of investment, it'll be fantastic, it'll completely change, so long as you don't raise our taxes or regulate us more or do any of these things. So Labour have to be smarter than that and look at the real financial incentive frameworks around the large corporate sector and the City of London and think really hard about it and what they're going to do about it. Um, but that isn't easy. It's not easy because it's in the nature... Colin Crouch described the neoliberal state as a semi-permeable membrane in which the state renders itself completely permeable to corporate influence but prohibits itself from then regulating the private sector that emerges. So it, it's a beautiful description but the British state is now so porous to corporate interest and so dependent in welfare state terms on public service industry firms that reform is slightly booby trapped in the sense that all of those firms as Gwyn has articulated are extremely highly leveraged, they're very indebted and if it turned out that an incoming government was not going to continually expand the public service market financial markets would call in those debts and you might find yourself with more than one Carillion happening. It is very difficult. We are very dependent on that sector and how you unpick it has to be done very carefully given the overgearing of these companies. Um, in terms of the political elite, it was a feature of late, and I'm only being slightly facetious here, unfortunately, it was a feature of late Soviet regimes that their elites, their leaderships were characterized by people of blind faith or raging opportunists. Because anyone of real reflexive intellectual capacity had basically either left the communist parties or been purged by them decades before. I think it is a feature of late neoliberalism that the, form, the kinds of people who are attracted to lead it 
are the very last people you want in power in a in a democracy. I call the, my penultimate chapter late. Uh, sorry, I call it um, neoliberalism: the Brezhnev years. And and I think we have a leadership that reflects, in terms of total absence of intellectual and moral reflexivity, the fact that it is the death of uh, a failing paradigm, basically. And we are they are the remnant that is left. Now I'm, you know. Really keen to get some, just a few more questions in, and we'll keep them really quick. So, uh, lady over there. Hello. First of all, thank you so much uh, to all the speakers. This has been incredible. My question would be to Dr. Abby Ennis. So, I was wondering, specifically from a Eastern European perspective, right? where you have kind of the scars of communism, but also a very sudden move to capitalism. And then uh, you're kind of told that your liberal policies are the best um, political and economic action that you, you need to take. Would you reckon, especially with the examples that you give, that kind of understanding the specific um, economic scene in, in certain Europe, Eastern European um, states is that going to help to understand better the economic situation in Britain and how the hold of neoliberal settlement has had such a grip in Britain? And secondly, what would that mean for the Eastern European world if we change the neoliberal settlement? And secondly, for the, all the panel, would you reckon that the neoliberal settlement has actually managed to legitimize racism and sexism in the UK? Because you could say on the kind of the personal responsibility idea or like it's a personal failure because you're not able to have certain economic um, abilities, reaches and so on, um, then it's much rather individualized rather than systemic. Thanks very much. That's, that's quite a lot. So we'll, we'll, we'll cope with that. Uh, this gentleman here. So in an increasingly financialized world um, where corporate interests are so prevalent, um, where do you see kind of real pressure coming from to sort of create this radical form of devolution that you talk about? Great. And there was one last question at the back. Uh, that gentleman there. Yeah, I had a question uh, about the notion of paradigms uh, brought up by Dr. Abby. Um, my understanding is that the process of change from one settlement to another is revolutionary rather than evolutionary. Um, so that said, do you reckon that um, you know, a revolutionary approach uh, to the current status quo would be something that's uh, necessarily good or is there something that we could do to um, sort of de-risk the outcome to ensure that it's a step in the right direction rather than something that's worse than um, what we're currently living? Okay, good. One last word, Rose, Abby, Quinn. Right. One last word. Because we're really at one o'clock. <laughs> uh, well, I'll take the revolutionary question. I, I, I think generally the people who suffer in revolutions um, are the very richest sometimes and usually the very poorest as well. And so I would caution against a revolutionary approach, although. The, Quite exactly what you mean like by that, I would be interested to hear more about because I, uh, I think 
I, I don't. I, I don't think revolutions lead to. I, I think they are taken advantage of by people who wish to seize power. Some people saw Brexit that way. Dominic Cummings certainly did. And it's a dangerous approach to assume that a revolution will lead to the uh, emancipation of the of the working classes. Great. Abby, Eastern European Yeah, uh, so Central Europe suffered the misfortune of escaping Soviet communism only to go into, the, into its mirror image utopia without being given pause to have civic republicanism in the intervening period. Um, so I, I, I think that Central Europe in a way teaches Britain a great deal about what neoliberalism in the raw does to a political economy without the post-war legacies of institutional integrity that the UK had. So in that sense, Central Europe could, I think, did teach us a great many lessons that we chose to ignore. Um, and, but in that sense, both Britain and Central Europe have suffered a similar set of, um, as it were, analytical constraints, and those in turn have produced a whole set of institutional dynamics that are very undermining of democracy and make it very difficult to consolidate in the Central European case. I'm with Roz on opposing revolutionary changes. I think probably the most, one of the most profound changes we could have is proportional representation. It would bring in real competition into the political marketplace and that would be a very good thing in terms of pressure on corporations, consumer pressure can be surprisingly effective. It was very effective on Unilever um, for a long time, but what then stymied Unilever's attempts to become much, much greener uh, was the market for corporate control. So the fact that you can have hostile takeovers in search of financialization stop the state from being able to act strategically around um, corporate development. So there are lots of reforms in the corporate sector that would allow us to have a more longer-term horizon, I think. Final word, okay, you. You're, you're the non-revolutionary experimental <laughs> close analysis ration change one of the things I, I didn't say but I think it's worth you know there are these books written about the financialization of corporations uh, and John Kay and Ronald Ferrara uh, and I can't, sorry, I can't remember but basically they destroyed great corporations like GE, Boeing, ICI so focusing on making money is the last thing you want for a successful corporation and in terms of public services, this is uh, Samuel Bowles' argument, that basically if you say to people you're in a market can competing, uh, Julian Legrand argues that you know, this uh, reinforces those who want to provide a good service because you get more money in the market, and it penalises those who don't try. But Samuel Bowles' argument is that this is completely wrong, that your brain either responds to financial incentives or altruism incentives. And if you mix the two up, you will drive out altruism. So I think we need to completely change all that and recognise that most people who go into public services, go into it, wanting to do good in the world, and recognise and build on that rather than build markets around it. Excellent. Well, I'm sure the debate will carry on uh, just outside, so we, we hope we'll have some wine and nibbles. Also outside, you'll be able to pick up copies of Gwyn's book should you wish to invest in a treasured copy of your own. If you don't want to do that or you haven't got the resources, it's like every other LSE Press book. It's available online. You can download it in one of three digital formats. 
chapter by chapter or down on the whole thing and uh, give us some feedback on it and, and so on. And then Gwyn will be signing a few copies in here, so we'll bring him some wine through to help him bear the cost. But thank you all very much for coming. You've been a wonderful week. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.